What It Takes is brought to you by Google, leading the way toward our carbon-free future. By 2030, Google aims to operate on 24-7 carbon-free energy. That means completely eliminating carbon emissions from its electricity use all day, every day. Maud Texier is Google's carbon-free energy lead. 24-7 carbon-free energy is brand new. And so that's why we have to be creative. We have to experiment. We have to think outside of the box and really quickly identify the solutions and test them so that we can achieve our goal. Sourcing local, round-the-clock clean energy for every hour of Google's operations won't be easy, but with the right advances in technology, policy, and procurement, it is possible. Later in the episode, Mode explains how data transparency and the spirit of collaboration can help bring about a carbon-free future. For more information, go to g.co forward slash carbon-free by 2030. I'm a journalist. I had a, a long career in public radio at uh, This American Life, and then later at a show I co-created with Adam Davidson called Planet Money. Oh, my dog is barking, sorry. And oh, then, I also have a dog who will probably yeah. talk and bark <laughs> at some point. <laughs> oh. And then, uh, hold on one second. I'm gonna have to get the, <laughs> the, the, the treats here, hold on. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero carbon future a reality. The vast majority of Americans care about climate change. 75% of us fall on a spectrum ranging from cautious to alarmed. There are a lot of nuances to the way people perceive our warming planet, but media coverage of the issue is often catastrophic, scientifically dense, or framed exclusively around politics. So how do we talk about climate in a way that resonates across the diverse groups of people who make up this climate majority? That's what our guest, Alex Bloomberg, kept asking himself. A lot of the, the framing was about, this is really happening, everyone. You have to believe us. And here's more bad news. It was talking to a, an increasingly committed layer of people who you're never going to convince and turning off a bunch of people who are already freaked out. And so I was like, I think there's a better way of talking about this, which is just sort of like, this is happening. We all understand that it's happening. What do we do? Alex is an acclaimed audio journalist. He's the co-founder of Gimlet Media and host of the Spotify Climate Solutions podcast, How to Save a Planet. Alex has pushed the boundaries of audio storytelling. His startup-turned-podcast empire, Gimlet Media, was one of the first breakthrough podcast companies, focusing on ambitious, explanatory journalism and rich narratives. And in 2019, Gimlet was acquired by Spotify for $230 million. Alex is known for a very specific brand of storytelling— blending rigorous reporting with a casual conversational delivery. He does it with a very deliberate purpose, to make complex topics accessible. He learned these skills working for the radio program This American Life, under the tutelage of pioneering audio journalist Ira Glass. And he put those skills to the test in 2008, when an economy in freefall transformed the lives of millions of people. He developed a story with NPR business reporter Adam Davidson about the roots of the housing crisis called the giant pool of money. I think we were the first people to really, in a popular, understandable way, explain some of the systemic forces that were sort of driving what was happening, that explained it in a way that didn't leave you like, but what about this? But wait, why? You know, it was like that. It was sort of like it helped put things in, in, in place, I think. 
it won a Peabody. And as the housing crisis turned into a global financial crisis, Alex and Adam's reporting project transformed. Giant pool of money came out in 2008 in the spring. And at that point, it was still somewhat contained. And then the whole world blew up. Like in that fall, that's when Fannie and Freddie were, almost went under and the Fed had to do this massive bailout. And then in January of that year, like it was like, are all the banks going to fail? And so then it was people were talking about like, OK, this is perhaps the next Great Depression. I felt like we needed to you know, sort of explain this moment. And we had all this built up expertise now that we'd like learned all this stuff and had all these contacts. And so felt like we could do that. So Alex and Adam launched Planet Money, a show that made economics and finance accessible to a general audience. The recipe was simple. Find good stories and strip out all the jargon. It was the right moment. The show resonated. And Alex saw an even bigger opportunity. I had like this background in sort of like crafting audio narratives that had emotional arcs, you know? (laughs) And so we'd put those two things together and we were like telling sort of like stories with emotional arcs about business and finance and economics. And it felt like, well, if we can do that about economics, sort of what can't you do it about? If we can do it about business and economics, we can do it about anything. We should just do more. And so he did more, a lot more. In 2014, Alex left public radio to create Gimlet with his business partner, Matt Lieber. They billed it as the HBO of podcasting. They raised over $28 million in venture capital and built a network of narrative shows across science, news, true crime, pop culture, fiction, and more. Alex even made a popular podcast about founding Gimlet called Startup. And five years after Gimlet's launch, it was acquired by Spotify for a record sum. Podcasts had become a big media business. Alex's brand of storytelling clearly had a market. And so, inside Spotify, he returned to his journalistic roots and searched for a new reporting project. If you didn't have to do anything else, like, what would you do? And I was like, I think I'd just do a podcast about climate change. <laughs> That's what I really want to do. And, uh, and I was like, wait a minute. You know, I run a media company. I could just do that right now. You know, so that's that's sort of what I, you know, that's sort of what what it was. That new project was How to Save a Planet, a show designed to make climate stories engaging and empowering. From Planet Money to Startup to How to Save a Planet, Alex has been a major source of information and inspiration for me. So I was thrilled to sit down and hear more about his entrepreneurial story, how it led him to climate, and how he thinks we can save the planet and really save ourselves. We started with his early years as a kid who spent most of his time with books and in nature. I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. I was a, what kind of a kid was I? I was a somewhat bookish, pretty shy kid, like read a lot. Like I played sports and stuff, but it wasn't like, I wasn't like a, what you'd call an athlete or anything in uh, in school. And I was like sort of pretty nerdy. You know, I read comic books and I was like into science and I just read a ton. I was That was my main thing. I read lots of science fiction and fantasy novels and comic books. And that's mostly what I remember. I liked, my dad was a very, he liked taking hikes and he was sort of like an amateur naturalist kind of kind of guy. So we would, you know, go kicking around streams together and turning over rocks and looking for snakes and salamanders and stuff like that, which you could do a lot of in Cincinnati. So, yeah. 
before journalism and radio, I know you used to be a middle school science teacher. Did your experience as a teacher influence your approach to journalism? Um, Did my experience as a teacher? I think so. I think one of the things that's really exciting about being a teacher is that you can sort of explain something, a concept to somebody, and then see them get it. And that's very exciting. And I think some of that instinct sort of informed a lot of my journalism. Like a lot of my journalism was like, sort of like, why is this happening this way? And then sort of figuring out like the societal mechanism that makes it happen that way (laughs) and then explaining it to people. And I think some of the best work that I did as a journalist was like in that vein. And I think that comes straight out of teaching, like that idea to the the instinct to um, explain something in an entertaining way. Because I taught seventh and eighth graders. And so if you if you couldn't hold their attention, it was over. Like <laughs> that room was constantly on the very brink of just sort of like erupting into chaos, and then you were, they were over. <laughs> um, yeah. How did you make your way then from teaching into radio? I'd always been interested in journalism. I like may you know I think again nerdy childhood. My and my the kind of house I grew up in. My parents read a lot of magazines back in the day, so there was like. New Yorkers and Harper's Magazines and sort of Atlantics and stuff lying around all the time. And I got really into sort of long-form journalism. Like, that was my kind of thing. I, that that was, I loved reading articles like that. Um, and so I'd always been a consumer of it. Never thought that I would be able to do it somehow. I didn't know how you got into journalism. And I, I'd been sort of more science-focused in, in high school. And, and so I wasn't like, I'd never been on the paper or anything like that. And frankly, the thought of like cold calling people and interviewing them was terrifying to me. I was pretty shy. So, but then I'd always sort of wanted to do it. And then I got an internship at Harper's Magazine one summer. I I feel like I was a late comer to a lot of things, but I got introduced to the idea of an internship. And then I met somebody who knew somebody who worked at Harper's. And I was like, there are people who work at Harper's? Like, that seems impossible, (laughs) you know? And that person was like, yeah, you should apply. There's four interns, you know, every, every three months or something, you know? And so like, there's, you know, so I applied and I got it and I ended up working over the summer and I could do it because it was an unpaid internship, but I had, I got paid through the summer as a teacher. So, so I made it work and that was sort of my entree. And then from then I sort of like, I met somebody there who was sort of consulting with this American life as it was just getting started. And so got connected to those folks and got, you know, eventually got a job as the administrative assistant at, at this American life. And sort of like they were so strapped for people that I got a chance to sort of like start doing some stuff. And basically I had I my girlfriend had just broken up with me. I was like sort of at this job that I was like increasingly becoming clear was not going to be my career. And I was feeling sort of desperate and and had nothing to lose and um, nothing else going on in my life. And so I was able to throw myself wholeheartedly into learning this new thing, which was like a good thing. So I stayed all the time, worked on learned Pro Tools, you know, just like kept my key card, kept coming, going back, you know, that sort of thing. One of the most important moments in your audio career, I, th- I think, was in 2008 when you produced The Giant Pool of Money uh, for yeah. This American Life. It was an episode explaining the root causes of the financial crisis, and it was incredibly popular. Why do you think that story landed so powerfully at that moment? I think it landed very powerfully because it was like sort of like nobody knew what was happening, and we explained what mm-hmm. was happening. Because there's only a couple of narratives, really. <laughs> and one narrative that I think journalists are particularly drawn to is the sort of villain-victim narrative, which is sort of like there's a victim and then there's 
a bad person doing something to the victim and therefore we've exposed it. People were trying to put it in that frame and the frame was either, and but like depending on what kind of outlet it was, <laughs> the, the victim and the villain were completely reversed. So sometimes the victims were the banks <laughs> and the villains were the dodgy lenders who'd lied on their applications and taken out loans they couldn't afford and the poor banks weren't getting paid back. But then other times the victims, the villains were the banks who were sort of like, doing all this predatory stuff to trick people into into loans that they couldn't play, pay back. And both of those were like, there was elements of truth to both of them. Certainly there was predatory behavior on the part of the banks. There was occasionally people gaming the system and you know sort of like taking out loans they probably shouldn't have taken out. But mostly, neither one of those narratives really fit because it's not in the bank's interest to like trick people into paying, not being able to pay them back, right? Like they want to get paid back and it's not in anybody's interest to like trick banks into like, you know, sort of giving them a house they can't afford because they're just going to get it taken away. So there's, there was something more going on. And I think that, and I think we were the first people to really, in a popular, understandable way, explain some of the systemic forces that were sort of driving what was happening it was the first thing that that explained it in a way that didn't leave you with like, but what about this? But wait, why? You know, it was like that. It was sort of like it helped put things in in place, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the case of the giant pool of money, it was so resonant with its audience that you ended up launching an entirely new NPR show devoted to the topic called Planet Money. And interestingly, Planet Money was the very first podcast I ever heard. And oh, it wow. was how I fell in love with podcasting. Oh, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a very full, full circle moment uh-huh. for me. What gaps were you trying to fill in reporting on business and finance and economics with the show Planet Money? So the Giant Pool of Money, it was me and Adam Davidson, who was an economics correspondent at NPR, and we did The Giant Pool of Money together. And that was sort of like, that was like, I'd been sort of interested in it, and he'd been covering it, and we were like, this is some, something weird happening, and so we, we did it together. And then I was like, okay, done. And he was like, no, 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 we have to do it more, we have to do it more. And he, it was really his impetus that like led to the creation of, of Planet Money. I would have just gone back and just been like, whew, all right, that was done, what's next? And he was like, no, no, I think that this is going to keep on going. And then the whole world blew up. That's when I went to Ira and I was like, hey, I think I want to go work full-time on this this, this planet money thing. And then fast forwarding to Gimlet, which you founded in 2014. It was one of the first serious media companies in the podcast space. What was happening in the world of podcasting and in your life that made you want to create this HBO of audio? Planet Money was a mashup of sort of like, you know, Adam was super steeped in sort of like, the science of economics and like had lots and lots, of, he, he was just a correspondent. He had tons and tons of contacts. And so he had this subject matter expertise and he's just an amazing sort of storyteller in general. And then I had like this background in sort of like crafting audio narratives that had emotional arcs, you know? <laughs> and so we'd put those two things together and we were like telling sort of like stories with emotional arcs about business and finance and economics. And it felt like, well, if we can do that about economics, sort of what can't you do it about? Like we could do it about technology and autos or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, like all sorts of things, uh, history, you know? And so, and it just felt like podcasts were taking off. There's all these independent podcasts that were happening that were growing really quickly. Like I remember Roman Mars, uh, 99% Invisible, which is like a podcast about design, was like, had this big audience. This American Life was becoming more and more of a, a digital audience. There were other podcasts that were sort of like starting to pop off. And so it just felt like, this is growing. And like, the, remember, in the time 
it was still somewhat of a novelty that like, it was still pretty radio-based in the public radio world. And podcasts were still sort of like, what is this thing, a digital thing that people can listen to anytime? I mean, it's sort of crazy to think that, but that's sort of the way, it still felt new, you know? And so I think that was what the impetus was. I was just like, okay, well, we just need, this one worked. If we can do it about business and economics, we can do it about anything. We should just do more. We should do more of these. Mm-hmm. Um, that was mm-hmm. basically it. Like, oh, this is this is a thing. We should do more. And that felt exciting. Mm-hmm. Did you have a sense at that time that you were going to build this podcast empire and eventually sell it no, to one of the no, biggest no, no, audio no, brands no, in the world? Or was no. it just, <laughs> I mean, I want to, yeah, I, I see a business model. I want to try this out. I think the basic idea is was shockingly unchanged from what sort of like I was halfway dreaming of in the beginning, knowing nothing and what we ended up building. You know, I was like a network with a bunch of different shows and that's what we built you know sort of a you know a, a network with a bunch of different shows i had no idea like what it would take to do all that like all the steps that go into that how complicated and hard it is how you build the sort of like business side to sort of like support that and i never thought selling was never anything that was on my mind i don't think by the time sort of spotify was like checking us out like it was like been 5 years and things had changed. And and it also felt like, oh, this is maybe going to, I don't know, the, the landscape was changing a lot. So it felt like it was the right decision at that time. You were extremely transparent about both the successes and challenges involved in founding Gimlet in your podcast called Startup, which documented the founding of the company. I remember listening to every episode as it came out. I just cringed right alongside you as you were pitching to Chris Saka. And um, (laughs) what was the thinking around developing the show to document your struggles and the rise of the company, which, you know, at the time you didn't know that would be the path? Well, I think there was two things. One, I was leaving these massive platforms, right? Like This American Life is one of the oldest and most popular podcasts in existence. NPR is like, you know, the storied sort of entity with like audiences in the tens of millions. I didn't have a Twitter feed, you know, when I, I didn't have a Twitter account when I left NPR to start this company. So I was like, I had a personal audience of zero. So part of it was like, I need try to do something to draw attention to this company, because if we don't have audience, we have nothing, right? We need the audience. And so we need some sort of channel. We need some sort of interesting thing. But then, so there was that. And then, and I was like, what's going, the only interesting thing that's happening is, you know, I have access to the story that happens quite a bit, but like, you don't see the real gritty details of because most founders aren't documenting themselves as they're founding their company. But then also, It was the realization. Remember, I was like, what I brought was like sort of the emotional arc to these stories. Like so much of the emotion gets left out of things. And actually, it's mostly what drives everything, I think. I think nowhere was that truer than business. Like nobody ever showed in the narratives around sort of business creation, business formation, entrepreneurship. Like it was always just sort of like, we did this thing, we had this idea, and then we exited or, and then it was a success or, and then we launched or, you know, and it was sort of like, there was like, I was like, why was all the stuff in between, (laughs) you know? And I was just shocked by how personally fascinating I found my own emotional journey and how like fraught it was and how 
And I was like, does everybody who's ever started a company, they're going through this? This is bananas. Yes. <laughs> and so that was it. Yeah. I was like, this story is like way more interesting than it's ever been told before. Yeah. And like, this yeah. is crazy. All the things I'm experiencing and feeling and being told and like the ups and downs and the, the crushing of my emotions. And it's just crazy. And so it just felt like, yeah. it felt like, oh, I'm I'm in the middle of an amazing story. Um, I have access to this amazing story. Uh, and so that was partly it too. It was just sort of like, well, this is this is a good story. <laughs> Mostly that was what it was. It was like, this is a good story. I have, a, I have access to this amazing story right now because it's me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's very much aligned with the spirit of our podcast, What It Takes. It's It tells the personal journeys of individuals who, yes, it's about the company. Yes, it's about the technology and the market, but it's about who you are, what has made you who you are, the struggles, the highs, the lows. Because like you said, those stories don't get told and everyone feels like, oh, I must be a failure. I must be doing something wrong. I must be so alone in this. And none of us are, but we don't know that unless we share the reality of, of building a company. And you did that just incredibly well. So thank you for doing it in the way that you did. I think that's one of the things that comes with with experience is like recognizing the emotional trajectories that you're the the, the emotional patterns that you're going through because now because there's this feeling of like this is hopeless I should quit right and you always have that at points and if you don't have a lot of experience you maybe listen to that feeling because it's a very powerful feeling like this is hopeless I should quit it's you know often that that feels very true in the moment and it's only with experience that you're like, oh, that's that feeling. I'm having that feeling. The it's hopeless. I should quit feeling. <laughs> um, but in if history is any guide, it will be followed by like, oh no, it's working out, or I just had a breakthrough feeling, or something else, you know. And then it won't mm-hmm. feel that hopeless. But it's really hard to know that unless you've been through it a couple of times and seen and sort of seen the whole yeah. thing play out numerous times. So yeah. What It Takes is sponsored by Google, leading the way to a carbon-free future. At the top of the show, you heard Maud Texier, one of the people at Google working to make 24-7 carbon-free energy a reality. Google is the place to innovate. So we are also very well resourced to really invest and investigate in that space. And we're also a very large energy user in the first place. By targeting round-the-clock clean electricity everywhere it operates, Google is drawing the roadmap to decarbonize the entire electricity system one grid at a time. And this is why Google cannot do that alone. And we're going to try to find the right partners to really drive this transformation that is necessary today. Google is partnering with all kinds of energy innovators, including some of the companies you hear about on this podcast, to bring about a carbon-free future. And in the process, Mode and her team are committed to being transparent with process and data so others can decarbonize their operations as well. Because 24-7 carbon-free energy is new and there is no framework, we're really trying to adopt these principles of transparency in our process, which means that we're going to try to share as much as possible about our discovery, our questions, and our progress. Uh, For instance, we shared our white paper on our methodology earlier uh, this year. This white paper is outlining completely all the metrics and the data and the questions that we have about the methodology. And by sharing those kind of data and insights, we hope that it's going to help other people and other users adopt their own 24-7 carbon-free energy journey. If you want to get inspired by the challenge or if your business can help Google get to 24-7 carbon-free energy by 2030, visit g.co forward slash carbon-free by 2030. What It Takes is also brought to you by Next Tracker. With trackers and controls based on machine learning technologies, Next Tracker builds connected solar power plants that keep getting more intelligent. 
Solar is quickly becoming the cheapest form of electricity on the planet, and NextTracker's technology helps developers lower their costs and boost energy yields. NextTracker is also committed to increasing diversity within our solar workforce, working with Renewables Forward, Solar Energy International, and the Clean Energy Leadership Institute. NextTracker is educating and training the next generation of clean tech professionals, people from all backgrounds. If you want to learn more about NextTracker jobs, visit nexttracker.com forward slash careers. So after telling the story of the financial crisis and then telling your personal struggles as an entrepreneur through Startup and Gimlet, you eventually found your way to climate and and speaking to climate solutions. What brought you to climate? It's always something that I've been concerned about. And it wasn't like I consumed a lot of media about it because at at a certain point I was like, okay, no, I know. I'm scared. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> uh, but um, so, but at the same time, it also was like, it just felt like, okay, we know it's serious and it's bad. And at and this has changed pretty significantly, I think, in the last couple of years. But like back when I was first considering doing this, which was like sort of before we sold to Spotify. So this was like 2019, I guess. It felt like there wasn't there just wasn't a lot of media about it. Just like felt like this incredibly important thing that nobody was talking about, and and I sort of knew why because we at, at this American Life even we tried to do stories about climate change and it was hard at that time because like it's hard it's hard to do a story about something that that might happen or will probably happen but has not happened yet. I always say it's like easier to do a story about a building on fire than a building that might catch on fire. Um, and you don't see CNN sort of like, this building is at risk of fire, <laughs> right? <laughs> They're only showing the fire buildings <laughs> that are already on fire, right? So mm-hmm. um, so I think, and that was also, I was like at, in 2019, I mean, obviously it was happening earlier, but like the, uh, the ramifications, the effects were much more widespread. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I think there's a better way of talking about this, which is just sort of like, this is happening. We all understand that it's happening what do we do? What do we do about it? Like, what do we do? How do we mobilize politically? How do we, how do we engage people socially? How do, what are the, the, the technological solutions? But that's just one part of what we talk about. So that was the idea. How did you connect with um, your co-host, Ayana Elizabeth Johnson? And I know she's leaving the show, so curious what will happen next. Yeah, we we met at a party. We were at this event that was a lot of, there's a couple different climate folks there. And this was at the time when I was like, sort of like talking about like, I want to do the show. I want to do the show. And she was like, we just hit it off. And like, and she was like, I want to co-host it with you. And I was like, that's great. I want to co-host. And so, and cause I don't know anything about climate change. Actually, I'm not like, I know, you know, I'm a, I'm a good journalist, but I'm not like a subject matter, again, not a subject matter expert. So at the point, at that point, I was like, I know I want to do a show. I have no idea if it's good or bad or like, I don't know how or what it should be or anything like that. And so the idea that like, here is this incredibly accomplished, inc- incredibly talented on the mic. Ayana is just like a marine biologist, incredibly detailed, incredibly smart, incredibly knowledgeable policy nerd. And she's just like, an, like a like a full-on comedian. Oh, like yeah. she's just hilarious. Just so much presence and charm on the mic. And I was like, this is crazy. Like I think even to this day, she doesn't quite understand how rare she is, but I'd never seen anybody with that much sort of natural affinity to like 
being on on mic and just like bringing it, you know? Um, I think I always say that like the people who like really sort of gravitate toward radio or podcasting and sort of like really sort of thrive in it are people who have some sort of frustrated ham bone in their body. Like maybe they, they played around with like, comedy or they were like did theater in high school and it wasn't something that they ended up following or whatever because they were really more interested in whatever like you know science or whatever but like they did it and like Ayana's definitely like she was like she was a jazz singer in high school and like she was like she's got this performance mm. bone and you can totally mm. tell she's also you know? really good at poking fun at you on the show which <laughs> exactly well it's <laughs> <laughs> the role I was I was I've been I was built to play <laughs> what is Somehow that happens in all. <laughs> I know. Yes, yes. No. Find myself in that role a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, what has been your favorite or most successful episode of How to Save a Planet? There's a bunch that I really like. I really liked our regenerative agriculture episode. Um, we talked to these two different regenerative agricultural farmers. And I liked that one because it was sort of like it highlighted something that I think is really important and doesn't get highlighted enough, which is sort of like intersectionality in the climate movement and sort of like good ideas need to come from everywhere, everyone and everywhere. Do you see climate change differently today compared to when you launched the show? Yeah, very much. There's a lot of things that like make me more hopeful and a lot of things, but it's also like, I'm also much more aware of the complexity. I think at the very beginning, like I was just sort of like, listen, everyone, we, we need we need a price on carbon, and that's the first like that'll get us there. You know, <laughs> just like can we just do that? You know, and and I think I still think that's that was probably true like ten years ago, twenty years ago. So certainly, I think at this point we're sort of beyond just like a magic price on carbon is going to fix us, and also it's just politically never going to happen. But the other things, and also it, like I think the way it's implemented can like like it's hard to square carbon price with equitable impact and, and and sort of like how do we square all those circles but then there's other things that are i didn't realize like how far along a lot of these technologies were i didn't realize how like the economics of renewable energy are so much better than the economics of fossil fuel energy i didn't realize like what sort of a tipping point we had already hit i think because when i think i first started thinking about the show, I was like, we really need to like get this thing happening. And now I feel like, oh, this thing is happening. And is I don't know if it's going to happen fast enough or in the right way, or like that's the that's the like speed, the urgency, et cetera. But like it is to me now, I feel like, well, it's there's no question that we are going to have a fossil-free world somewhere in the next several decades that's a big how many decades is a huge question but but the inevitability of it feels like that's something that i've sort of only just fully come to realize and also just sort of like the massive transformative potential of of that shift i i think we're still at the very beginning of grappling with like what does that mean we've had an entire world economy that runs on this sort of like this magic black elixir, <laughs> you know, which is oil and which is like this incredible compound of like carrying and storing energy. But with all these horrible side effects, you know, most primary of which being carbon, but lots of other ones too. Like, you know, in economics, there's this term, the resource curse, which was sort of the last thing you, as a developing country, the last thing you want to have happen is, is to discover oil because it just like completely screws up your economy and your society. And it like, it allowed, because oil can 
is so valuable, the elites can take hold of it. And then it just, and it doesn't flow through the rest of the economy in the same way. It just becomes this thing that just all the wealth gets siphoned off. And so the fact that we can have more distributed energy that can be more, more flowing through the economy, I think that's a really, I don't think that's a fully understood part of this equation. And I think it can be massively beneficial for, for human well-being. So the fact that like all this power won't be, won't be controlled by people who happen to have like dug a, a very fortunate hole in the ground <laughs> is going to be really, really big, yeah. you know? Yeah, well said. Yeah. I mentioned our podcast, What It Takes, is all about entrepreneurship in climate tech. It's largely a business and entrepreneurial audience. Given your experience now as an entrepreneur and now working in climate, what advice would you give to people starting companies or organizations uh, in, in part or exclusively to address the climate crisis? Hmm. There's so many ways to find found a company, and there's so many ways to do it right, and so many ways to do it wrong. And, and so it's hard. Like the way I did it, I don't. I'm not. I don't think a serial entrepreneur. Like I'm not a person who's like I want to find found this company and then this company and then this company. I think more. I was like I'm a journalist, and I really like telling stories. And 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 I have like. For a journalist, not bad business skills, <laughs> <laughs> but like, but for for a business person, for an entrepreneur, they're not that great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so I think for me, it was just sort of like focusing on. I would never have tried to start a company in anything other than something that I mm. knew very, very well. So, for me, my advice is like sort of stick to what I what I knew, know. But I think more, it's like the thing that I wanted to bring into the world was very, very honest. Like I, I wasn't doing it to get rich, although I did. I wasn't doing it to like, get famous, although, you know, I was in, you know, newspapers. I was purely, mm-hmm. I was truly doing it to, because like, I thought this is a thing that I love and there should be more of it in the world. And I think trying to keep that in mind, I think there's so much like sort of hype and mythology built up around entrepreneurship and like, you can get caught up in like, scaling or being successful or like figuring out your product market fit or whatever. And like, to me, it feels like the companies that matter are the ones where it's like somebody feels very, very connected to the thing that you're putting into the world and you have a reason that you want to do it other than just like, this could be successful or or I could get glory or whatever. You know, I think you you have to like have some kind of connection to what it is you're doing that is beyond just the business reasons, um, I think. For me, anyway. I couldn't agree more. And it's a perfect segue into what we call our high voltage round. We close with a bunch of questions, (laughs) quick questions, really quick answers, like 10 seconds or less, starting with Alex Bloomberg. If you were to be an animal, what animal would you be and why? an otter, just because they like to swim and they're playful. And <laughs> I think they're cute. I've <laughs> always related to them. <laughs> what inspires you? Uh, what inspires me? Like, I don't know. I mean, this is cliche. My family. I really, I, I have two kids and uh, and my wife. And I just, I really, I love them. They're like constantly changing and I love them. Hmm. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? I would want to do something, I think, in this world of, some kind of like clean sort of energy entrepreneurship. I'm super I'm super interested in this idea of like what is what does energy generation look like in this new in this new paradigm? Mm-hmm. And like what are the ways that people like 
not at utility scale, but also bigger than at like rooftop solar scale. Mm -hmm. What kinds of roles are there for like entrepreneurs and sort of in that middle, in mm. that middle space? That feels exciting to me. Mm. I'll follow up with you after yeah. the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like the same level of person that like opens a restaurant or something. Like what can you do except in energy? You know what I mean? Or like an auto yep. dealership. Like if I didn't want to do an auto dealership, what, you know, that's totally. the sort of thing that I'm interested in. Anyway. Yes. I like it. The kind of business that sponsors little league teams. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Oh, my wife. I, I think, you know, I think we, we're, we have a great partnership and she, was on board with this, helped create the space for it, and then helped m run Gimlet. So, like, that was amazing. And then, and then I think my parents certainly, and my upbringing. And then the final person, I think Ira Glass was a big inspiration. He's, you know, he's my first boss. Where I was like, oh, you're a visionary. You see something, and you're you're making it happen, and and you you're excited by it. And you excite other people because of your excitement. And that was really, really valuable. What is the best investment you've ever made? Oh, Gimlet by, by, by a long shot. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's for, for sure. I mean, around the, the giant pool of money, I did have like a small retirement savings. And I did at a certain point, I was like, I really think something horrible is going to happen. So I moved all my money out of stocks and put it into nice. like safer and stuff. And that was the right move. I didn't time it perfectly, but I but I did, you know, save myself some money. Hmm. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? I think the process of being a journalist is if you're serious about it is is realizing that like the world is much less simple than you think it is. And a lot of the things that look like the only explanation is like you know somebody's behaving in an evil way. It's very rare that somebody's actually it's that's that's often the rarest. Sometimes but it's often the rarest explanation, and usually it's something else. Mm -hmm. When are you your best self? I think the one thing that I'm truly good at is like editing audio stories. And so I think often when I'm in an edit <laughs> and somebody's played me the story and they're like, I don't know if this is working, I think that's when I'm my best self. I can, I can often help that situation. What is your worst trait? I know this because as an executive and CEO, you're, you're constantly having to do these things called 360s where everybody uh -huh. around you sort of like tells you They're what brutal. you're good at and bad at. <laughs> yeah. So my worst trait is my um, blinding optimism sometimes that keeps me from looking at, you know, sort of like the things that are truly not working and trying to deal with them. I think also like that, that pairs with like a, a certain amount of conflict aversion then those two things together can sort of be deadly and lead to some mm -hmm. bad outcomes. So, mm -hmm. and I'm trying to get better at both of those things. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? <laughs> Confirmation bias. What is your best quality? My best quality is uh, I try to be a good listener. I think, think I do a pretty good job of that. I try. I don't think I'm a very judgmental person. Because I think, and I think that's part of what gets me in trouble, but I think I try to understand, I try to see where everybody's coming from. The last few questions are in the form of finish these sentences for me. So finish the sentence, companies fail because. I think one reason that whatever the shit is that the founders haven't dealt with becomes, blows up and takes over the company. Found, like I think companies often fail for the same reason that relationships fail. 
I know we started the show talking about how people often feel like they know podcast hosts, even if <laughs> even if we've never met. So finish the yeah. sentence for me. If you really knew me, you would know. I think I'm. I think you mostly you know me. Like I've met now <laughs> a lot of podcast hosts, and some are completely different than they seem on the air, and some are like more or less the same. And uh, I don't. What you see is what like, you get with you. Yeah, what you see. What yeah, I think <laughs> yeah, like. Ira Glass is like, he's the same. Jonathan Goldstein is the same. You know, that that is who, who he is. I, I think I'm that way. I don't know. Yeah. Other people might say differently, but yeah, I think I am. Success is? Doing something that actually makes a difference in the world, I think. Hmm. Last question. To build a successful company, what it takes is? <laughs> uh, what it takes is focus. on on what you actually want to bring to the world. This is a perfect way to end. I can't tell you how much it means to just have this conversation with you and to learn more about you and to hear more about your journey. It's really it's really an honor given how I started my podcast journey. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm so happy that you're focused on climate and doing what you're doing in the world. Um, so thank you again for joining us. Yeah, thank you. No, it was really, really wonderful to be here. It was really fun. Alex Bloomberg is the co-founder of Gimlet and the host of Spotify's How to Save a Planet. Join us for new episodes each month of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. One thing you can do to support What It Takes is to give us a rating and write a short review. The team's favorite review from this last month hits on the key themes that Alex spoke to in this episode. A.H. Good Energy said, We live our lives through stories. And these are wonderful stories of good people doing good things in the energy transition. Thank you so much for your kind words, AH. We love reading these reviews. I want to thank Google for their support of the show. Find out how Google is accelerating the deployment of next-generation clean energy with its 24-7 carbon-free goal. Learn more by following the link in the show notes. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with Postscript Media. Powerhouse is an innovation firm that works with globally leading corporations to help them find, partner with, invest in, and acquire the most innovative startups in clean energy, mobility, and climate. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, backs founding teams building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures portfolio companies are hiring for over 100 roles. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund, that's powerhouse.fund, and follow us on Twitter at Join Powerhouse, and you can follow me at Emily Kirsch. Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey, Jamie Kaiser, Alexandria Herr, Rye Story Fisher, Emma McDonough, and Sam Woolforth helped produce this episode. Sean Marquand mixed the episode and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. 